you're listening to episode 65 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, subscribe to my newsletter, and find loads more about my work, you can go to pasachipotle.com. Hey, 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 everyone. Oh my goodness, it's so nice to be back. And what a better way to do that than with a refreshingly warm and rich conversation. Before I tell you all about today's episode, I want to put you up to speed with what has happened behind the scenes and the microphone on my side. I can proudly share with you that I have finished the first term of my postgrad, but it came up a very high cost because I barely had time to do anything else. However, I did carve some time to create something I have thought about for a long time, and that is a catalogue which I called the Ultimate Mexican-Inspired Christmas Wish List, which is a hand-picked selection of cookbooks, books on culinary history, art, architecture, and photography. Also food-inspired literature and thrilling films. And I have used many of those as references in the making of loads of episodes of the show. And I decided that since I've compiled all these amazing titles, well, might as well put them together in a beautiful format so you could have some top-shelf inspiration for this Christmas. I also reached out to previous guests of the show whose work I have featured, like Salsaology, Macienda, Voladores Vanilla, and Merci Mercado, along with Karina Mora's beautiful photographic work and Atelier Camacho's adorable handmade Mexican dolls, all of which offered limited discount promo codes for you. All you need to do is look for the link on this episode's notes or go to my website, positivebotley.com, and you can download it absolutely for free. Now, I am so very happy about this long-awaited episode that meant I will get the joy of sitting down with food researcher, blogger, author, and traditional cook, Meli Martinez founder of Mexico in My Kitchen, one of the most loved and trusted references of traditional Mexican food on the internet. We pretty much continued a conversation that started three years ago, when she first came to the show, and the recent publication of her debut cookbook, which is already topping the lists of the most celebrated books of the year, is what brought us together. 
This conversation really aimed to frame the depth of Melly's work, the cultural significance of helping continuing the food traditions of Mexico. We talked about the cultural roots of our cuisine and why she chose to focus on home cooking and how she aims to enrich the lives of her readers with this beautiful book. For me, This interview is also a way to make visible the growing sense of solidarity among the international Mexican community of food professionals and how we have chosen to support each other's work, celebrate our mutual achievements and share our culture with pride and dignity. I hope you enjoy this episode. Melly, what a joy it is to sit with you again. And welcome back to Pass the Chipotle podcast that is, of course, your house. Now, as we pinky promised the last time we were behind the microphones, we gather here again to celebrate the publication of your first cookbook, The Mexican Home Kitchen, traditional homestyle recipes that capture the flavors and memories of Mexico. Big congratulations on that. And now I really don't want to delay getting right into the interview. And sure thing, I know you are very much on demand these days. So welcome, my dear Melly. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. I remember the time that we talked about it here in your podcast. And I didn't imagine that the book would be what it is right now. But I'm so happy to be here with you and to talk about the book. Well, let's let's get into it because we've got so much to cover and unpack of this wonderful treasure. Well, I was thinking about what family cookbooks are, and I think that as historical documents, they really are a very rich and intimate source of information, and sometimes it really becomes the only way to access a society's cultural history, like through their cookbooks. Because we will learn then about the people's tastes, the ways of, I don't know, maximizing the resources available, and how food has helped facilitate things like cooperation and solidarity, and even how they celebrate life together. So I remember a few years ago, and you shared here on the show, the history behind the famous blog that you created, Mexico in My Kitchen, and how it all started precisely as a way to preserve the traditions and favorite family recipes uh, for you to pass them on to your son. But of course, over the years, you have built an enormous catalog of recipes from all the places where you have lived and traveled here in Mexico, uh, which is one of the many reasons why I think it's really really important to underline the huge contribution that your book is doing. First, it's written in English. And of course, that in and of itself will make it accessible to millions of people around the world. Second, you provide absolutely faithful and really accessible Mexican cooking methods and techniques. And, well, I don't know, you have a much better access than myself to the everyday worries and needs of home cooks. They bring to you their technical questions, but also I think they, they are looking for a sense of reassurance 
the, like the kind of guidance that you can only get from your mom or your aunties and friends here in Mexico when, when one is learning to cook. So I, I was just trying to imagine what were the conversations like with yourself and with your editor about the type of book and also the type of voice that you wanted these first cookbook to have what what do you want people to feel like when when they use your book and cook from it one of the main ideas i wanted to do is is a book that will give people the sense of security that they will be able to recreate those recipes at home i wanted to be a book with easy recipes with ingredients that will be available almost everywhere i know it's That's not possible, but if you live in like in the United States nowadays, there are many Latin communities in large cities, and you are gonna find ingredients in a Latin store and even a big section of Mexican ingredients. So that was one of the things. The other was I wanted to be very explicit about the instructions and give a lot of detail so the people could have the confidence that when they cook a recipe, the end result is going to look exactly or close to what is in the picture. I wanted them to feel that I was there with them and that I was guiding them, showing them with a hand, look, you're going to steer here for five minutes, and then after two minutes, when the onion is getting a light golden color, then just turn the heat up or you add this ingredient, also giving them a lot of uh, notes saying, in case you don't find this ingredient, uh, use this one. I wanted to people to feel that it's not going to be one of those books with complex techniques and with a long list of ingredients that it will scare them. I wanted to feel that the recipes were doable. And another thing that I wanted is that the recipe has to be as authentic as possible. I know being outside of Mexico, that is not possible. That's what I didn't want to have the name authentic in the cover. So I wanted to say is the recipes are the traditional recipes that you are going to find in a household in any given day during the week. If you go to visit your aunt on a Friday and say, what are you cooking? I'm cooking milanesa. I'm cooking albondigas because that's what you're going to find. So I wanted people to feel how we eat in our everyday life compared to an image that some people as a tourist find when they go to Mexico and they go to the taco and to, to the beach, you're going to find a lot of uh, recipes with uh, seafood, or fish, or things like that. Uh, I wanted it to feel how is what we eat in our everyday life. I wanted to include recipes that were from the places I have lived. I don't want to share a recipe from a place I have never been or a recipe that I have never tasted. It's really disappointing to see nowadays that you go to websites and people that You can see right away that they have never been to Mexico or that they just went for a weekend or two weeks to Cancun or two weeks to Oaxaca. And then they feel that have the expertise to share something that they don't know. I wanted to share something that I can feel confident how people will translate those recipes, those ingredients and those techniques into something that they will enjoy. Selecting the recipes was also based on that, on the places I have lived and the food I eat growing up and 
the people that I've met while I live in different places in Mexico and the recipes they shared with me when I went to visit them in their house. I didn't want to share some recipes that we don't need every day. Like we don't need birria every day. <laughs> like for example, yeah, like everybody now wants to make birria tacos or birria quesadillas. That is, is a hype right now. That's, that's the sense that I wanted to give people. And I hope they find it. I hope what I was able to transmit that. No, I think it does a marvelous job at it. And you just said loads of very interesting things. But I want to underline this very interesting observation about the perceptions of Mexican food that visitors might get. That is a slightly distorted version. The kind of food you get in a restaurant, the kind of food you eat in a in a beach resort, but it's not really an everyday food. Here in Mexico, food itself announces like a certain activity, a certain pace. Everyday life is much slower. We take things at a different pace. And just the, the fact that you took all this care and attention into show people how at home we negotiate what we have in the pantry, what we have in the fridge, what we can get in the corner shop, and how... And how, what is in season. What is in season, exactly. Mm-hmm. I think just like opening that window into this intimate way of eating is a way that it will be less familiar but it will be very evocative for people who grew up in Mexico or has family in Mexico and visits regularly and they don't quite know how to access that kind of food or that kind of form of cooking. You mentioned another interesting thing about the way other type of cookbooks present Mexican food. You know, it's been 10 years that Mexico's gastronomy was included in UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage of mankind. And you know, it's uh, a bit funny that people say, oh, Mexican food is having a moment. But really, us Mexicans, we kind of laugh <laughs> a little because like, we know it's been a few thousand years in the making and it's been having a moment all the time for us. So that is not to say that the international visibility of Mexican food has increased exponentially in the last years, of course, because there is this boom uh, of cookbooks, many of which have been written by foreign chefs and cooks who come on taco field road trips, and then voila, they turn a cookbook. So, well, I'm very vocal as well about how critical I am about this, because, you know... I recognize that there are a few contributions that are, you know, very acceptable. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the, what the reader of those or the following of all these uh, chefs don't know is that just a few weeks of food safari would never, ever be enough to even scratch the surface of the complexity behind the food culture of Mexico. You know, you need decades to study. So in food studies, like the discipline, a cuisine, it is defined in a very good way, I think, as an ongoing historical process. So it's not just one dish. Voila! It's going to take you more than one life to learn it. I love vintage Mexican books in Spanish because for me, at night when I am reading, it's like, a, oh my God, they were cooking this in this time. And then I read in 1945, the lady, I don't know the name, She was 64 when she gave us this recipe. And I was like, 
boom, I would, my mind is blowing away like that. But all those things, it's really hard to learn everything. Yeah, let alone in one trip, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Something that I think is that Mexican food is something that you learn in your lifetime because we see it in our house growing up. We see how our mom will cook something different when Lent season is approaching. People is going to give certain foods in the children parties. And then it's going to be uh, the day of the dad. And you're going to see that they are going to cook particular dishes that you're only going to see in that time of the year. And if you go to Veracruz, if you go to Sinaloa, or if you go to Chihuahua, it's going to be a different thing. So it's not going to be something that you are going to learn in one, two, three, four years. Because it's something that you see when you go to the elementary school and the kids bring the lunch, the sandwich, and you see that one has potatoes and chorizos and the other one uh, has maybe shredded chicken with mole. And those things, people are not going to find out that if they go on a trip for one year or two years to (laughs) Mexico. Why? Because they didn't live it. You're absolutely right. You have to leave your culture. You have to go through all those stages in your life and understand what the children eat, what the young kids like, and what your grandma used to make when you used to go visit. It's like it's a cultural thing that you are not going to absorb in a trip to Mexico. No, no, no. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah. And now, like going back to that exact point, in your book, you share very heartwarming memories growing up in Mexico, really, you know, evoking all those things that you were just telling us, all these layers, you know, these connections, visiting friends and feeding your curiosity, seeing how others cook, how others um, uh, celebrate things. Like you said as well, It's not the same type of life and the same type of relationships and the same type of food and experience that we have growing up in the city or growing up in rural areas, for example. So I don't know, why don't you tell us a bit more about this uh, significance uh, of certain special foods in, in specifically in your book, like you talk about Molen, maybe try and, and share with, with a non-Mexican, our non-Mexican audience beyond the flashiness of, oh, it's a chocolate sauce. Like what really is, when do we eat it? How do we eat it? Why is it important? And why we get so worked up when, when it's minimized as a, oh yeah, sauce. <laughs> uh, I learned to make a mole from my own, Leonor in Veracruz. I think I was 16. I remember one summer for my mom, I wanted to go visit my aunt in Veracruz, in the, in the city, the porn city of Veracruz. And when I arrived there, I really liked the way she used to cook and she used to do catering for like quinceañeras. So she used to make big, huge pots of food. And one time she made mole and I was so surprised to see all the ingredients for the first time. Because I, I I didn't pay attention growing up to that part when they were making molly. But when I saw that, I really fall in love with the process. Because 
Molly is one of my favorite meals. But when I saw all the ingredients that she added, that that time were 17 ingredients, and the results of it, I wanted to go back home and recreate it myself. And I remember that it was, I didn't get the same result because I didn't grind it well. It was really coarse. So I made the mistake to give it uh, to our neighbor and the neighbor finished grinding it. And then she came and told me, oh, Melly, that mole was so good. And I was like, really? Yeah, what's the best mole I have it? And like, what did you do with it? Oh, I finished what you didn't finish because it wasn't ready, right? You still needed to grind. And I went, oh, my God. Mole is a mixture of things, of ingredients that represent a lot of things for Mexicans. We don't see it as a, as a mixture of ingredients. Mole for us is a celebration. Because when somebody say, oh, come to my house, we are going to have mole. People is going to ask you, what are you celebrating? It, it means it was made special to celebrate something. It means that people put a lot of work into that. And just the fact that you think that somebody spent several hours making it makes you really appreciate it even before you sit to it. Because you know the time that was implicit in making it. And I think that just that enhanced the flavor and the pleasure of eating it. I tried to explain as careful as I could so people will not feel intimidated to make it at home. You have to have all the ingredients ready and then you start frying and then you start boiling and all those aromas that are coming out of the kitchen are going to bring your neighbors knocking your door because the mixture of flavors is something that goes beyond the window. <laughs> Mole is something unique. And we Mexicans, we really appreciate it and identify with, with that dish as something that is a special meal for us. It's so special, which is why it's also considered a ritualistic food in the sense that, you know, we create rituals around it, rituals of getting together, rituals of celebrating, rituals even for remembering the departed. Yeah. And that's why we put mole in the altars, because it's also a celebration of yes. their lives. Yes, it's a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. So the problem with seeing Mexican food with just under the light of heritage, it, it can be a way of fixing a tradition in time, like freezing it like with that, and preserve it because that is authentic. Like any other expression of creativity is wrong, no? Which we know is not because cuisines and even more so home cooking is the best expression of a living, breathing culture. And evolves. It's evolving. Exactly. It was with, with yourself, with your own way of cooking. And your book also takes us traveling in time into your own life and among the <laughs> more than 80 stories behind the recipes in your book. I don't know if you can think of, I don't know, maybe three that are particularly close to your heart. One of the recipes in the book that I really wanted to have there is the tomatadas. It means comfort food for many that you need few ingredients, tortillas, a tomato sauce, and cheese. And I always think on tomatadas like our version of pasta. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Because yeah. pasta is tomato and cheese. One of the memories that I have of that is that my mom it used to have that as a, the easy to go or the handy recipe that she will use when we have visitors for brunch. And you know how we Mexicans say, 
say it like, oh, did you already have lunch or brunch? Are you hungry? No? Okay, let me fix something for you. So every time I made uh, tomatadas, I think of my mom when I was in middle school and I would come with my girlfriends that we were like 12 or 13 years old and she would feed all of us in tomatadas. And then frijol con puerco that is from the Yucatan area because I lived six years in Tabasco. I didn't know when I moved there how much of the influence of the gastronomy of Yucatan is permeated into Tabasco, like the panuchos and the tamales, the way they made it. But frijol con puerco that is pork with beans is something that they make very traditional on Mondays. I didn't know about that. I was living with two girls from Yucatan and some from Tabasco. Some of them were in charge of cooking the meal for all of us. And then I started noticing, like, why every Monday do we have pork with beans? And then, like, well, that's a thing here. That's what you have, pork with beans. And one day I was coming back from the bus station and I passed by a house and they had the window open. And I overheard the husband asking, is the pork sandwich ready? And then I realized, oh, it's Monday. They <laughs> were like, oh, it's, it's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday. Uh, uh, I was so curious about that custom that is very well settled that I started digging in about the historical background. And I couldn't find it in Mexico. But if you go to the Alabama area, people make pork with beans. They make a similar dish in that area. Uh, maybe no, maybe no black beans. Maybe pinto beans or black eyed peas. They make a dish with beans and pork. And what I read is that by the first Africans that were brought to the United States, Monday was laundry day for them. And the easy thing for them to cook was beans. They would put them to cook all day long. So when they come back, when they finish the, their work the meal was ready and they used the bone of the ham or maybe the pieces of the ham. So they just simmered them all day long. So at the evening when they were ready to eat Monday, they will have pork and beans. So I don't know how that relates to our culture, but I am always surprised about that. And that, what, that dish is on the book. It's a very easy to make. There are there are there are many dishes that I can talk about, like uh, the chicken salad that people will think that that is, that is not Mexican. And I wanted to include that because I wanted to people have a sense of what other meals that for us are normal to eat. That it doesn't mean beans or tortillas or salsa. I remember uh, one time I went to Chapultepec Park in Mexico City and I remember people seeing them opening all the Tupperware and that way they have chicken salad with uh, crackers or with tostadas. People will think in another country that we don't need that kind of food, but we have integrated in our everyday life that for us, it's a normal thing. That is a whole topic, the way exactly our food like reveals our own history, and not only our culinary history, but our political history. You know, all the exchange of products has been absorbed and made our own. You know, pork arrived here in the 16th century with, with the Spaniards and, and when the process of the conquest started, and it, of course, disseminated all across the Gulf of Mexico, you know, from the Caribbean all the way to what is today uh, the South of, of America. So, of course, we share all those all those foods and, and even the same solutions, no? like slow cooking, slow simmering, 
thing and all that. That, that takes me to the next uh, thing that Mexican cuisine can easily be described, you know, or just perceived as vibrant, it's colorful, it's rich, and it's picante. And yes, yes, of course, it can be all of that at the same time. But like you say, like we don't eat mole every day, much as we like it. We also eat jellies, and we also eat chicken broth, and we also eat, you know, chicken salad. <laughs> exactly, and, and a closer look it reveals all these things, all these nuances, uh, traditions, ingredients, the flavor combinations that are particular to specific different places and even events. What we call today Mexican food, quote unquote, it's really exactly what you say, and what I go on and on about on the podcast that is the fusion of many traditions many ingredients that's the word it's a fusion that's the correct word yeah. exactly mm -hmm. many techniques and tastes that don't necessarily just begin with the spanish colonization because the roots of our cuisine really stem back thousands of years with the legacy of the ancient indigenous cultures of mexico and the food systems they created that is you know the, the culinary techniques the type of uh, produce that they cultivated so well we can say that our modern gastronomy is mestizo or mixed heritage it is at heart indigenous but it dialogues no it talks with the new ingredients yeah. it, it just It doesn't stay there. And your book does a really good job at presenting these fusions of different kind of negotiations of ingredients. So I don't know if you can choose from, from the recipes in your book, some that are, or one that is like more indigenous, one that is like more Spanish, and maybe one that has a bit of both. I know most of them will have a bit of both, but you know, that is more distinguishable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of them, most, because we have to go through the basics because you have to uh, remember that the indigenous people, their dishes were not as complex as they are now. The, I know they used to make like pipianes with some dry peppers, dry seeds. We don't have pipianes in the book, but the basis are the black beans, the corn tortillas, and the salsas. Just the, there's a great combination with pepper, beans, and tortillas, the same way that other cultures have uh, lentils with uh, wheat bread, and that's how they make their meals. It's the same. Right now, our everyday meals, it is a fusion of our indigenous background with our Spanish culture that was integrated to us. I have few recipes in the book that will be like very indigenous, like you will say, how cooking, how to cook beans, the how to make tortillas, although I the book has adapted the recipes. I have adapted the recipes for people that live outside Mexico because it's very hard to find nistamal. We use uh, masalina. There are recipes for atoles, but again, we are using masalina. Like one of the basic ones, like it's a white atole. I, I'm using milk. That milk was not existing back then. The Spanish brought the cows and the, yeah, the pork. And uh, we used to make tamales, but we didn't use lard that time. The tamales were not as good as they are now. <laughs> <laughs> With the fat, but no, they were good. But, um, and one that would be like a half middle in between, it will be, for example, like frijol con puerco, pork and beans. It's a perfect sample yeah. because it's just pork and beans. Two cultures collide together and make an amazing soup, very simple, But very tasty. A lot of the recipes in the book reflect the influence that my husband has in me. He loves everything that has tomatoes, olives, raisin, capers. So we have chicken Veracruz style, 
is a clear example of how the Spaniards, when they came to Mexico and they first arrived to Veracruz, they clearly left a footprint in our gastronomy, especially in that region, when they make very rich stews, which resembles a lot of the ingredients that they brought, because they stay really long in that area. So that, that chicken Veracruz style is a clear example of that. I'm actually thinking about my own grand father who was uh, from the three times heroic town of Alvarado, Veracruz. And of course, Christmas here in, in the Carvajal family is cod stew, is bacalao, uh-huh. with these rich ingredients, olives, capers, yeah. really <laughs> strong uh, flavors that you don't see that much inside, you know, the center of Mexico. Probably, I don't really know. I mean, it was the entry point from the Atlantic, you know, they would come into the Gulf of Mexico and probably, you know, if they brought all these ingredients uh they will eat them there on the spot because they will get spoiled <laughs> they will get spoiled and also you know they go great with fish as well and uh, that's my theory anyways but you're absolutely right and great examples of course and speaking of my grandfather i just thought of my grandmother uh, his wife i was thinking about you know like uh just how your book is really trying to help families reconnect with their own family traditions, but also create their new family traditions to continue mm-hmm. them with their children. I have to confess that when I saw the lovely photos of your recipes for the birthday cake and the tres leches cake, it just took me back to my childhood uh, when my grandma Rebecca used to bake tres leches cake for my birthdays. There was no other cake. It was tres leches because that was her cake and that was the birthday cake. So it's so evocative. Your whole book is... It really talks to any Mexican. And I think that's the beauty of it. What do you think it is uh, in this new sort of phenomena that everybody's turning now in our very modern world, turning back to old school cookbooks, like to traditional cuisines? And... Why specifically the the cuisine of of Mexico? It's so appealing for people that are not even Mexican or that live in very hyper-modern places. Like, what do you think is the factor that is connecting this old tradition with our new way of life? Well, one thing you mentioned a while ago that is uh, the hype of Mexican food and that people say that Mexican food is now in And I was just reading an article uh, this morning about 10 or 15 years ago, it used to be Italian. Everything used to be Italian food, Italian food, pasta. And now it's Mexican. It's a trend here. Uh, I think with the access of the internet and the social media, and now that so many people travel, and many people going to Mexico and tasting the food, and they come back and they want to taste the same food, that's Talking about people that is no Mexican, they, they want to try to replicate those flavors at home. But something very interesting happening in the Mexican espats. When the first Mexicans start coming to the United States, they didn't want the children to speak, for example, Spanish. They wanted to speak English and to quickly adapt to the new culture so they will fit in. And also they changed the way they cook to adapt 
because they they didn't want to be discriminated because the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they cook. But something started happening some years ago that people is having a sense of reconnecting with their culture. People is feeling very proud to be Mexican. People now want their children to speak Spanish. And people is celebrating our festivities here. Last year, I went to a posada. For people that know what is a posada, uh, it's a party that we make. It's nine days in a row before Christmas Day. After so many years living here, I was invited to uh, posada and we did the whole thing, the piñata and the candles. And it was such a nice feeling that for a moment, you feel that you are in Mexico. Expats are now expressing a sense of pride to be Mexican and to showing to the people what it is to be Mexican. How do we celebrate our traditions? They want to like rescue that part of our culture and they want to pass that to the next generation. I've been listening to people that say, you know what? I didn't teach my children how to cook and right away I bought the book to give it to them as a gift because that way they are going to cook the recipes that I cook. I didn't have a time to write it, but now they have it. People want to preserve that. I know people is going to do some changes. People is going to adapt. People is going to try to change or substitute ingredients because they are not going to find everything. But at least as they preserve the essence. Mm -hmm. And this keeps going on because this is a big part of who we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't remember if I told you this, but I read a long time ago, like six years in a book of sociology that says that when somebody moves to another country, the first thing they do is they learn the language of that country. Maybe they are going to change the way they dress, but that person will not change the way they eat. Mm. It's going to pass two or three generations that they are going to change the way they eat. That's a very good one. And, and we want to preserve that. that. That's what I wrote the book in English because I wanted to reach to the children of the immigrants because they understand more English than Spanish. It was like a gift for them. So you can remember your mom. So here it is. It's an, a manual for you so you can keep going. So let, let's keep our traditions going to the next generation. Oh, Meli, that is so beautiful. I mean, in essence, you are providing a canvas of dignity and pride to the way we eat because it's the way we experience life and the way we connect as a family as well. And it's so many memories that, that, that we have related to food. And I always tell them, when you eat that food, and somebody told me, I taste this, I made this recipe, and it tastes like my mom. And she passed away so many years ago. Well, you know what? It's like your mom is visiting and sitting with you on the table. Absolutely. Think about it. We are cooking and we are thinking about them. We are bringing them back to life. Yeah. It's, um, it's what, what we call in food studies uh, that food stops being a substance. But for us humans, it's a food that has meaning. Oh, yeah. So we are not being fed by the substance. We are being fed by the meaning. And yes. by the connection we create with that one who prepared it for us, mm -hmm. the intention. And that's what creates, you know, a, a food tradition, really. And speaking of, of the people who make this tradition uh, strong and keeps it alive and going, when we say in the case of Mexico that traditional cooks are yeah. the custodians, and by traditional cooks, 
We mean like the mom, the aunt, the 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 neighbor. Exactly, they are the traditional cooks, and they're the custodians mm-hmm. of traditions. We mean it in the most literal way, because you know, like we were saying at the beginning today, cooking and a cuisine more than a noun or a set of dishes is an ongoing action is a process that is constantly in need of being lived. A food that is not transmitted, a knowledge that is not transmitted is lost. That's why it needs this continuity. That's why you are continuing to provide this connection. So it's a collective Mm -hmm. reproduction. So in in your book, you make a, a recognition from the happy, enthusiastic taqueros that share their family recipes, Doña Hortensia, who showed you the art of homemade flour tortillas, your auntie's Sixta Nono, your mom, of course, who who initiated you into this wonderful alchemy of love that is Mexican cooking. And I don't know, I'm sure there's like dozens more. And, and I was um, hoping you could share some anecdotes about the amazing people that also passed on to you these, these traditions. And, and now, thanks to your book, we have access to those traditions and they will be also part of our lives by extension. Yeah, well, talking about Doña Hortensia, um, we were living in Monterrey, Nuevo León. My son was a year and a half. And so we needed to have someone that will come and take care of him while we work. And I wasn't sure she was going to be able to take care of him because she was an older lady. But one of the things that she told me is that she has eight children and that every morning before coming to my house to take care of my son, she will make one kilo of flour, one kilo of flour tortillas. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like a lot. <laughs> we are talking about two pounds of tortillas. Uh, and, and I was like, why do you make so many tortillas? Oh, that's just for breakfast. <laughs> when I go back at night, I had to make the same amount for dinner. Wow. And she told me that it was the only way she would eat. She did. She didn't like to use forks too much because she would scoop her food with flour tortillas. Mm-hmm. One day she told me, "Let me make some." Like, are you sure? So I gave her the money. She went to the store and brought one kilo of flour and a quarter kilo of shortening. And she and I told, her, "No, no, no! I don't need you to make that many. Make like about ten. And then she told me, no, because that's the only recipe I know how to make. Uh-huh. I don't know how much flour do I need to make 10 tortillas. That I learned from her how to make flour tortillas. She still lives in Monterrey, a very sweet lady. And with the taquero, well, when, when I knew that we were coming to live to the States, I didn't want to miss some of the things that we have, like tacos. I mean, tacos is not something that we actually make at home, that we go eat at the corner taquero. So I went and talked to him and told him, you know what, I'm, I'm moving out of town. Um, I need to know what is the secret to your tacos because they are really good. I remember that he started kind of like thinking to himself something like he didn't want to tell me. And then he said, I always add a little bit of lard. That's what makes it so tasty. <laughs> of course, that's the secret. That's the secret. <laughs> And then the, the other recipe that is in the book is the 
asados de puerco, also from Rebellion, from Monterrey. We, we used to travel a lot to McAllen, Texas, from Monterrey. It's a two-hour drive. And close to Linares, it's a city close to Monterrey, like a one-hour drive. There was a lady that was selling tacos early in the morning, and she will make tacos the asado de puerco. And that, that's the recipe in the book. Well, Melly, what a wonderful trip to memory lane and also to, you know, all the things that we cannot wait to continue exploring through your book. And I really would love to carry on talking, of course, because it's a delight to talk to you. But we have to begin closing down the interview. And again, I cannot tell you how excited I feel. This book is a great addition to the enormous effort that many Mexican cooks, researchers, and, you know, all the, the Mexican professionals in the food uh, world are putting into reclaiming our own culture and our cuisine and sharing it in our own voice with pride and with dignity. And I really want to acknowledge, we also as a community have grown a lot and many thanks to, this is very important, a key shift in the attitude we've had towards each other's work. Because we have understood that we are all on the same side. And by supporting each other, we can all rise. It makes us bigger and it makes our work better. And you, for years, have offered advice, support and words of encouragement, love to me and to many others that I know you have also looked after with this love and care and warmth that is so distinctive of you. So I'm really, truly happy to share this important milestone that is your new book <laughs> with Thank the you. world. So, uh, but tell us what is next for the upcoming year. What adventures are awaiting for you? Well, I definitely want to work in another book. And uh, also we are starting to produce videos little by little we are learning that's that's what we are making and more more recipes also now i am spending more time in mexico love to go to the market there and to cook so i and now i'm spending my time between texas and mexico that's that's what i'm doing next year amazing you can't see meli i can and i can tell you she just said that with a big 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 beautiful smile on her face so the book is the mexican home kitchen traditional homestyle recipes that capture the flavors and memories of mexico it is available in all bookshops brick and mortar and digital of course it is also of course listed in my catalog the absolutely amazing mexican inspired wish list with all the christmas ideas you might need you can find Melly on instagram twitter facebook youtube of course more videos coming pinterest all the links of her social media will be available on the notes of this episode of course Melly, again i Send a big virtual hug to you and to your family and your beautiful dog as well. <laughs> Feliz Navidad! Felicidades again for your book and thank you for this wonderful gift. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope people get inspired to cook Mexican food and don't be afraid to cook Mexican food at home. It's easy, I promise you. It's easy. <laughs> and you will have Meli by your side guiding you with her beautiful <laughs> book. Well, that's it. So bye-bye, Meli. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. This episode was crafted with much love by me, Rocio Carvajal. Remember to find all the links on this episode's notes, that is, all of Melly's social media accounts and anything and everything we mentioned. And please grab a free copy of my Ultimate Mexican-inspired Christmas wish list and do use the promo codes because they're there for you. Remember, I am always around on Instagram and Twitter, so go give me a follow. You know where to find the links. And please share this episode with your foodie friends and loved ones. I pinky promise I will squeeze another episode before the end of the year. Wait for that little Christmas cracker. So that's it for me, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>